Thank you, Howard. Um, Tracy Martin is the one who's got the tickets. Um, excuse the view of Guatemala. There we go. Great. Um, I uh, have been swapping emails with some friends of mine that are far from this area. And uh, uh, some of those emails have, have uh, probably put a little flavor on the way I'd like to present class this morning, but for the fact I'd already written it before I started uh, swapping the emails. Uh, I've been sent some emails asking whether or not I agree with the premise that this hurricane was God's judgment upon New Orleans because it's such a sinful city. And I do not agree with that premise and uh, 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 have been writing viciously all weekend in emails defending my position. And uh, um, I will uh, let that in in a couple of areas as we go through this. But this is a wonderful class. If you're visiting for the first time, what we've been doing is we've been going through the Bible. And, and we call the class Biblical Literacy because we're asking the questions, what do we need to know about Scripture to be biblically literate? And we, you know, where did it come from? Where did the Bible come from? Who put it together? Who decided what's in it and what's out of it? Who decided uh, uh, what order to put the books in? Who wrote it? How do we know they wrote it? If we don't know, why did we let it in there if we don't know who wrote it? Um, all of these kinds of questions, and then starting with Genesis, we've been working our way through the Bible uh, to try and address the various uh, uh, books and what's in them and what's not in them. We've got a handout today. We're in 1 Timothy. Mark, welcome back. Mark's got the handouts back there. If you need one, raise your hand, and he'll come on down the aisle and give you one. Uh, we've got a need down here, Mark, if you could make your way down. The Robertson's over here and some others, Butler's raising their hands. Um, today, we start the pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral because there are three epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul basically talks to someone with a pastor's heart, gives instructions about pastoring, gives instructions about the church. Paul doesn't call them pastoral epistles. The Bible doesn't call them pastoral epistles. Down here, we've got a need, uh, Tom Webster, I think, um, or Tim Butler, somebody down there is waving their hands. Either that or they're hot. And um, I think the, the phrase pastoral epistles was actually first coined in 1807, if you want to be a trivia buff about it. But uh, uh, that is a, a, a label that stuck. So a lot of times if you go to a Christian bookstore and you're looking to buy commentaries, you think, I'd like to get a commentary on 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus. Sometimes when you read down the spines of the books, you won't find that name on the commentary. You'll find the name Pastoral Epistles, and that's going to include these three books. So with that, let's look at them. The Pastoral Epistles were written... Uh, I believe, by the Apostle Paul. I'm stealing again Rembrandt's picture of Paul because I don't have one of my own. And I figure uh, his is as good as any because I don't know what the guy looked like. I do know, as we pointed out before, that he didn't write in books because they didn't have books then. He wrote in scrolls and parchment. So Rembrandt missed that. And that little big pen he's holding is probably not that accurate either. Um, so uh, 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 setting aside where Rembrandt may have messed up here or there, we'll steal his picture of St. Paul and use it while we talk about it. Now, if you go look in commentaries, some commentaries are going to question whether or not Paul actually wrote these books. And the arguments against Paul writing it have been numerous. Okay? 
I want to deal with those briefly. I don't want to go into too much detail, but we need to know what they are because uh, it's part of biblical literacy. Uh, the first argument is there are words in First and Second Timothy and in Titus that are not found in the rest of Paul's writings. And the idea is if Paul wrote these other ten letters and we believe he wrote them, then these three letters should use all the same words as those other ten. And I don't buy that. Okay? I'm sorry. I've tried real hard to buy that at some point in my life. And here's, here's, here's why I don't buy it. You go back and you get the lessons two and a half years ago when we started this on Genesis that I wrote. And I'm telling you, I wrote them. My fingers are a half inch shorter than they were when I started this class because I'm sitting there banging these things out week by week. Okay? You're going to find a ton of vocabulary in the lesson this week that wasn't in mine that I wrote two and a half years ago on Genesis. Okay? And when you do, don't say, aha, Lanier didn't really write this one. It's got different words in it. Gobbledygook. I wrote them all. Okay? Now, the style is a little bit different. I've changed my style up. That doesn't convince me either. I've yet to find someone who's just going to write the same thing the exact same way, the exact same time, with the exact same language. So the fact that the words and the style are different doesn't bother me. Ooh, I've messed up. I did a good slide for this, and I haven't done it right. Words and style is one reason. A second reason is the theology. And the idea is the theology is different in these than what Paul writes. The third is some people believe these books were written at a time where there was this philosophy we talked about when we looked at Colossians called Gnosticism. And they say that didn't really hit till about 100 A.D., so this couldn't have been by Paul. Now, let's look at these individually. Um, Words and style. Um, what words are missing? Well, Paul's, most of Paul's writings talk about the blood of Christ. You think about the blood of Christ? You've heard about the blood of Christ. You've heard about it from Paul, right? No mention of it in Timothy. Um, there's no mention of the uncircumcision or uncircumcised in Timothy, which Paul writes of. The one that seems most glaring is if you look at Paul's other ten books, he uses the word spirit over 80 times, Okay? In First and Second Timothy and Titus, all three books put together, he uses the word spirit just three. So the idea is this couldn't be Paul. Um, um, you know, that's just not what he was writing about. That doesn't bother me. You go to the other ten, if you take out Philemon and you take out Colossians, he doesn't use the word spirit much in those either, so you'd have to throw those away. You know, Paul wrote about whatever Paul was writing about. He wasn't writing for scholars to come back. 1900 years later and analyze what vocabulary words he was using. By the same token, if we look at the theology, the, the, the reason people argue Paul didn't write these books off of theology is because if you read most of Paul's writings, he's talking about the cross of Christ. He's hammering home the cross of Christ. You're saved by grace through faith in the cross of Christ. And he hammers it home and hammers it home. And in these books to Timothy, these two letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus, he doesn't really talk about that that much. Well, that doesn't bother me either. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy was his co-author on half of those books where he's hammering home the cross of Christ, cross of Christ. If, if I'm standing up here talking to y'all, or y'all are standing up here talking to me, I'm not just going to repeat what I said last week that you were here for, especially if you helped me write it. I'm going to talk about what's new and what's important for me to talk to you. Just because I'm talking to you about Timothy today doesn't mean I don't think the book of Matthew's in the Bible because I'm not bringing it up. 
See, I think a lot of these theologians who think this stuff and who write these wonderful things, if you go back and you read these books and you read these commentaries, they can even bother your mind some. You start looking at it and say, well, man, Paul uses the word spirit 80 times. I didn't use it here. That's a pretty compelling argument. Okay? What happens is, and I'm convinced of this, this is the lawyer in me. Okay? What happens is this. These scholars, first of all, they are successful if they publish. In the scholastic world, your success is not deemed upon how well you stand up and teach your students. It's based on how well you publish. I was talking to Gracie this morning. What do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I'm already grown up. I said, yeah, right. What do you want to do when you grow up? She said, well, I was thinking I'd like to do, you know, ABC. I said, see, that's my point. You're not grown up. Now, what would you like to do? Well, one of the things she threw out there, in all seriousness, was she said, maybe I'd like to be a history professor. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, I think that's a great idea. She says, what does that mean? And I said, well, I said, if you're a history professor, it means some days you're studying to get ready for class. It means some days you're standing up teaching. And it also means if you're a college professor, some days you're researching and you're writing. Because there's this saying among college professors, publish or perish. Have you heard that? With the idea that, okay, well, it's the same true in theology. These guys that teach theology. And they all got to have something to write. And, and they can't just write the same thing someone else wrote. So they all sit around and they think, okay, now what's an angle on this no one else has had? And then they write these things. And none of them, not one of them, ever has to come into a courtroom and allow me to cross-examine them on these theories. <laughs> because if they'd let me cross-examine them, people would sit back and say, well, that doesn't hold water. I mean, this idea that, that Paul's theology is not present in First and Second Timothy, so Paul could not have written it, is hogwash. I mean, I would love to cross-examine some of these guys who write so wonderfully and then publish it and never come into our courtroom. So, that's the theology. I feel strongly about it. The third one is <laughs> Gnosticism. Gnosticism, you'll recall, we talked about uh, two weeks ago, and we're going to get into it in a lot more detail when we look at the epistles of John, because John's writing at a time that Gnosticism is a lot more in flow. Just suffice it to say, I could cross-examine him on that too, and that wouldn't hold much water. And if you're really bored and you want me to tell you about why, I'll be glad to do it, but I want to move on time-wise. Um, so, let's set those aside and accept that Paul wrote it. Who did Paul write 1 Timothy 2? Anybody have a guess? Well, y'all are good. <laughs> Timothy. <laughs> now, it's called 1 Timothy because it's his first letter to Timothy, not because it's to Timothy the first, as opposed to the next one, which would be to Timothy the second. Okay? It's 1 Timothy. This is uh, not an authentic picture either, but it does say Timothy up there, and it says saint up there, so I thought it was worth putting in there. Um, it's an early Christian icon of St. Timothy. Uh, um, what do we know about Timothy? Well, we know a little bit. And let's just refresh our minds with it as we get into this letter. Um, um, we know, we first meet Timothy in the Bible in Acts chapter 16, where Paul is on his second missionary trip into the area of what we would consider now southern Turkey. Okay? It's the Lycian Valley. Well, actually, it's even further than that. It's down in Galatia. 
Lystra and Derby were the names of the towns. And we meet Timothy. Timothy's got to be a young boy. Timothy's mother is Jewish. Timothy's father is a pagan Greek. Timothy's father, Timothy was not being raised as a Jew per se because he was uncircumcised at the time Paul found him. And because Paul was going to take Timothy with him and minister in some Jewish circles, Paul uh, uh, circumcised Timothy uh, when they first met. Um, Timothy joined Paul on a number of Paul's trips. We know that from the book of Acts, but we also know that from reading Paul's letters. Because for a number of those letters, Timothy is with Paul. And Paul, like in the Philippian letter, starts it out, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, right? So we know Paul and Timothy travel a lot. We also know from Acts that Paul would periodically leave Timothy behind to nurture a church or to help a church or to minister within a church or to grow a church son. So it was a really neat relationship. Paul considers himself the father of Timothy in in a faith sense. So Paul, no doubt, uh, was responsible or or involved in the conversion of Timothy. And these are the things we know about Timothy. Now, I have a question for you to keep you awake. What is the significance of this? 1940. Anybody? Uh Uh-huh. See, it's a good thing you came today. You stick that in your head. Some of you are thinking, well, World War II started in 1940. Uh, That's not significant. Significance is this. That's how many years ago Paul wrote this letter. Let's look at a timeline. (laughs) If we look at the incarnation of Christ, it happened around 2 to 3 B.C., something in that range. Again, I'll remind you, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought it happened at zero. No, that was the mistake of a monk named Dionysius Exegus, who in the 600s had been charged by the Pope to figure out when Jesus was born. Dionysius Exegus, you can remember his name because that's Latin for Dennis the Short. Okay? <laughs> Dennis the Short was charged by the, 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 the Pope to figure out when Jesus was born so they could start counting years A.D., which is Latin for the year of our Lord, Anno Domine, and, and B.C., which is Latin for something else, but I always think of it as before Christ, even though that's not what it stands for. So they wanted to change the, the, the dating system. Up until the 600s, dates were kept by the year of the establishment of the city of Rome. Okay, So they changed it, and that guy was off a couple of years. So that's why you say, well, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have been born B.C., Well, Dennis the Short came up short, and he missed it. The ascension, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and His ascension into heaven then happened in 30 A.D., most likely, even though He was 33 years old, okay? Then we have the book of Acts, and the book of Acts includes, starts sort of in a time period in this 30 A.D. era, and it goes till Paul is in prison in Acts chapter 61 in Rome under house arrest. Acts chapter 61. Acts chapter 28. Excuse me. The year would have been 61. And the pastoral epistles that we're looking at now were written somewhere in the range of 63 to 67 A.D. So that gives us a time range. Now I'm going to ask you this question. I have enjoyed the way we've been going through this because I've really grown to appreciate Paul. 
And a number of you have emailed me and said, man, I feel like I've gotten to know him. Okay? I'm starting to get sad because Paul's getting close to dying. And by the time we get to 2 Timothy, he's in the last days of his life and he knows it. And he, and he tells that to Timothy. And he tells Timothy to hurry to come see him because he knows he doesn't have long. Tells Timothy to bring his coat that he'd left at Troas. And I mean, it, it really is moving as we start going through this. But I want to focus, we've had the benefit of being able to follow Paul through Acts and understand how these letters were written and where they were written from and, you know, understanding he wrote Romans before he went to Rome, but at a time where the Christians, the Jewish Christians had been kicked out and then were brought back in. And I, there are some things that really helped us. I want us to look at the time period between the end of Acts and these actual letters and ask ourselves what happened in this time period. Okay? Let's focus on this time period and understand. So Acts ended in 61 AD with Paul writing those last four prison epistles as Paul's under house arrest in Rome. Everything we've got seems to indicate that Paul was released from that prison. The charges were not charges that should have stuck against him anyway. So if we go back to our map, Paul is over here in Rome. Paul is writing to these churches in the Lycian Valley, Colossae. Um, Ephesus is up a little bit outside of the valley, but it's still over in this area. Um, uh, um, uh, we know he wrote to Laodicea. He wrote to these churches here while Paul's in this last imprisonment. Those were his prison epistles. We believe there's a good reason to indicate that Paul, after he left prison, at some point goes to Crete. Because Paul writes to Titus and says, the reason I left you in Crete was... So what we've got is Paul getting out of Rome, the Roman prison, and probably coming down here to the island of Crete. If we uh, um, understand Paul to have been serious when he wrote Philemon, and he said, prepare a guest room for me, I hope to be restored to you, it's a... Uh, not much more than a one-day sail if you've got the right wind, but it's not that far um, from Crete over here to the area where the, the Philemon lived in the Colossae, Laodicean Valley. And so Paul would have made that trip over there having left Titus behind in Crete. We know that, that uh, uh, Paul from there, Timothy had been with Paul in the Roman imprisonment and I can imagine Timothy would have gone this way too. It looks like Paul left Timothy at the Ephesus church, which would be in the outer part of that ring there, as Paul continued. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So we see Paul going on to Macedonia while Timothy stays there in Ephesus and continues to work with that church. And that's where we are today. That's where we look at the letter of 1 Timothy because Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus during this time period. In fact, Paul tells Titus, I'm going to spend the winter in Nicopolis, which is right here on the, west, on the eastern coast of Greece. I'm going to spend the winter here on the coast of Greece. Come join me. And uh, um, so that's where it is. A basic outline for this. Um, you can find 30,000 different ones. This is the one I've put together. Greeting and instruction. For Timothy's work. Paul gives Timothy the greeting and instructs him on the work. That's chapter 1. That's what we're going to cover today. Next week, we'll look at the instructions on worship. We'll look at the instructions on overseers or pastors or elders and deacons. Next week, we'll look at the instructions on Timothy's role as a minister. Okay? Fasten your seatbelts and let's go through chapter 1. The greeting and the instruction for Timothy's work. 
starts out as a letter. Remember, Paul's writing a letter. And Paul had followed his same form. He always seems to follow with letters, which was a typical form for a letter of the day. I've taken the liberty of using a scroll, but I've put the start of this letter into our letter form. Paul begins as Paul, an apostle. And that's the same way we'd start a letter today. You have your letterhead with your name at the top. And then who it's to? It's to Timothy, my true son of the faith. Not a a son in a genetic sense, but a son of the faith. Paul was Timothy's faith father. Paul brought Timothy to the Lord. So, Paul an apostle to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then Paul begins with his greeting. Uh, It's not dear Timothy. It's grace, mercy, and peace. And that's what he offers Timothy. Paul then tells Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus. I left you there while I went to Macedonia and I left you there on purpose. I left you there because of the problems that they're having with false doctrine. Now, Ephesus was the mother church. Out from Ephesus, there are lots of other churches. You remember in Philemon, we've read last week that Paul had a greeting in there to the church that met in his home. Churches met in homes by and large. You don't find big church buildings or small church buildings really being built until the emperor Constantine converts the Roman Empire in the late 300s or whenever it was to Christianity. And then all of a sudden, since it's the official religion of the state, all of the state's official builders have to start building official churches. That's when churches started being built as buildings. But at this time, they're meeting in homes. They might meet in halls. There may be a few still allowed to meet in synagogues, but most of them at this point in time have already probably been phased out of the synagogues because you have so many Greeks who have joined the church that would not be allowed access into the synagogues. So you've got people meeting in homes. So it's not like, hey, I've been to the church at CFBC and I fixed the heresy so I can all move on. It's more like there's heresy in all of the little house churches and you got to kind of go to each one and they're all meeting some at the same time, some at different times. So it was a chore to deal with heresy in a community and in the churches at that point in time. Paul says, I left you there, Timothy, because I want you to stop, stop, stop the false doctrine. And there's a reason why. The false doctrine, or they, they were arguing about myths and and, and endless genealogies and, and who begat who and, and lots of things that really had no relevance at all. But it had gotten the church into a lot of turmoil because a lot of people were spending their time with it. Okay? That would be like us going over to help some hurricane victims. We've got a couple hundred people there that need us to minister to them, to love them, to give them some food. And we spend our time instead arguing about... Uh, 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 whether or not Paul wrote First Timothy when these people are there. You know, there, there are things that are worth arguing about and there are things that, that sometimes you need to say stop to. Paul's concerned and Paul says stop the false doctrine because the false doctrine leads to controversy. And it's just people fussing and fighting over things that really don't matter in a sense. If they do matter, they're negative. I, I'm not saying that I need to take a time out here because I've spoken unclearly. Heresy itself does matter. And if there's heresy, it's to be stopped because heresy leads to bad consequences. We might look at the heresy itself and say, hey, you know, fine, who cares? But the consequences are what we care about. There's a place out near our house. Lewis and I live near each other. There's a place out near where we live. And I can't draw the line, but I can tell you when it rains... There can be two raindrops that nestle, come right down together, snug and tight. 
And one of them is going to flow north into Cypress Creek. And the other one is going to flow south into Green's Bayou. It's what we call a watershed. And you look at two things that are just really close, right up next to each other. But there's a dividing line, and eventually they dump out into to, to bayous that are, are miles apart. Okay? Now, you can take heresy that looks fine, but Paul's making a point that heresy, that, 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 that there is heresy that leads in a complete opposite direction of where God's truth leads. And so it is important to focus on some doctrinal issues. I was uh, asked a couple of Sundays ago by a New York Times reporter who doesn't have a clue what evangelicalism is about. He said, what do you think about, and he named a church here in town that's a very prominent church. And I said, well, I have some good things to say about it, but I, 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 I don't want to speak ill of it, but it's not where I'd go to church. And he said, why not? And I said, because that's a church that doesn't care about certain doctrinal issues. All they care about is is making people feel real good when they show up on Sunday. And I said, I can't handle that because I think the doctrinal issues have consequences. And Paul deals with that here and he says, you've got doctrinal issues that are leading to controversy and that's not what you need. You don't need false doctrine. Timothy, you stay there and you tell them about truth because truth leads not to controversies. Truth leads to God's work. And God's work comes from the heart. God's work comes from a pure heart. God's work comes from a good conscience. God's work comes from a sincere faith. And these are the things you need to stay there and do. And you need to hold these things up. Some of the people that are causing the controversies, Paul says to Timothy, are people who are even doing it claiming they're teaching the Old Testament. They're claiming that this is the law. They're just teaching the law. And Paul says, but look at what the role of the law is. Look at what the role of the Old Testament is. Look at what the role, the purpose. We can take the Old Testament and we are to use it, and Paul will say to use it, but he's going to say, first of all, it gives us instruction and guidance, and second of all, it teaches against sin. So we can go to it, and it's useful to learn that we're not supposed to murder. We can look at it and learn we're not supposed to commit adultery or sexual perversions. We can look at it and learn we're not supposed to be involved in slave trading. We can look at it and learn we're not supposed to be lying. It teaches those, against those things, but, but, but the law is not sent there to breed a bunch of controversies while we're fighting over Scripture that, that some in themselves lead to heresies and the others are just a waste of time. That's not the purpose of the law. And Paul says, so now when you do this, recognize that there may be sinners out there dealing with this, but the sinners are not without hope. And we get that from the law too, but we also, Paul says, take it from me because I'm Paul and I was the worst of sinners. That's Paul's words. You think you're bad. We could have a show of hands. Who out there thinks you're a pretty bad sinner? But I wouldn't really want you to raise your hand. But realistically, I think my hand goes up and so it's probably okay for you to raise yours. And you won't get too embarrassed because mine's up higher than yours because I'm up here on this. Okay? I'm a horrible sinner. I got sin. I got enough sin for all of us. I have a friend who uh, uh, used to say he worked for a church. And he wasn't on staff, but he was there. I said, what's your job? He said, my job's to provide the sin for the preaching. <laughs> and he was actually really good at it. So, you know, uh, but Paul says, 
Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. He says, stick my list up there. I was an ignorant unbeliever. Man without faith and I was ignorant. Not only that, I was a violent man. Do you think of Paul as a violent man? He had been in his past. He says, I was a violent man. He says, I was a blasphemer and I persecuted Christians. But he says, in spite of all of that, I've been shown mercy by the unlimited patience of God. Now, in my email flurry over the weekend with my dear friend who is convinced that the hurricane was not convinced, who suspects that the hurricane was God's judgment upon New Orleans because it was Sin City, um, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, what about God's unlimited patience? And he emailed me back. He said, God doesn't have unlimited patience. And I emailed him back. He said, First Timothy chapter 1, unlimited patience. That took him about 20 minutes to respond to. We'd been going back and forth. Sin! 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 And then instead of like the 30 seconds later when I get his typed response, it's 20 minutes later and he says, well, in the New American Standard, they translate uh, uh, that instead of unlimited patience as perfect patience. I emailed back. I said, fine, it's perfect. It's unlimited. <laughs> Same thing! complete. It's mature. It's there. How on earth can you say that God, how on earth can you say that omniscient God is going to recognize that there are people who would turn to him and he's going to bring this hurricane in and wipe them out while all of the sin city people, I mean, you want to talk about the guys that own the gambling casinos? You think they got wiped out in this hurricane? Well, maybe the casino did, but they were long gone on their shiny jets. Okay? And the people who got hurt in this are the elderly or the poor people that didn't have enough money to get out of town or, or the sick and the infirm. He said, you know, types back, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? I said, Sodom and Gomorrah, God would have saved if there had been ten righteous people. Go back and read it. And before he destroyed it, he did get the righteous people and got them out of town. Just be careful before you go around. I'm not saying God can't judge people, and I'm not saying God can't judge cities. But I personally think if God was going to rain judgment down because of unholiness, that our whole country is going to be wiped out because we're all a bunch of greedy sloths. And I think the second place he might go is to the political capitals within our country because I'm not too fond of them either. But I do know what Paul says. Paul says that he was the worst of sinners and God in his unlimited patience showed mercy to Paul so that everybody would see Paul or see God as a God who works miracles within the lives of sinful people. And that's who our God is. He works miracles in the lives of the worst of sinners. And he can take the worst Paul and turn him into the saint that we read about 1940 years later that still sends chills down my spine because I love the man and what God did in his life. And I admire him and I respect him and I would love to, to, to be in his presence at lunch today. Okay? Paul, in the midst of this, I, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. In the midst of Paul recounting God's mercy upon him and God's unlimited patience, Paul just breaks out into a praise chorus to God. Paul says, Now to the King eternal, or the way I memorized it, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this passage. Look what it says about our God. The king. What does that mean? That means God's personal. Not a human being, but no less a person. There is something unique about us people. We're not like computers. Oh, computers can now beat us in chess. Gary Kasparov can't beat the computer anymore. Computers can add quicker than most of us. Computers have a better memory for numbers than anybody I know, save my wife. Computers, she does. I mean, you want a phone number? If she's dialed it in her history, she can tell it. She can tell you the phone numbers of her high school teachers. Okay? And heaven knows she's a long way from high school. The, oh, I meant in distance. Um, Lubbock's like a 10-hour drive. Okay, so... But, but there's something unique about man. Francis Schaeffer called it the mannishness of man. There's something that makes us different than dogs. I see they've now decoded the human genome for the chimpanzee and found there are just a few 150,000, 250,000 proteins different. Fine. I don't care. There can be one protein difference. I, we are who we are. And there's something unique that we call personality. There's something that's personal about us. And that is our God. Our God is not a supercomputer with incredible powers and abilities to regulate the laws of nature. Our God is a being with personness to Him. He's a sentient being. Not only is He the King, though, He's eternal. Unto the King, eternal. God exists outside our space and time. God is not merely the nature force of uh, good and evil. May the force be with you. Okay? God is not merely present in the American Indian, for example, concept, Native American concept of, of, of uh, a presence, a spiritual presence within trees and all living things. That's not... God it exists beyond our space and time. God didn't have a start. There's not a birthday for God. God was not... Something that began with the Big Bang. And if you're like me, your brain's saying, I can't understand not ever starting. Then where did he come from? Well, he didn't come from anywhere. Well, then how did he get here? Because we think in space and time. Our brains don't exist outside space and time. We can't fathom. We are all created. We can't fathom something that has no starting point because that's where we dwell and live. And Paul's saying, but God's beyond that. God's beyond that. He's eternal. Not just eternal, he's immortal. When's he going to die? Never. There is no end. Find the end of the circle. Start right there at uh, 12 o'clock and start following around and find the end. Well, there is no end. There's no end to God. God is immortal. He, we don't have to worry about him being gone tomorrow. We don't have to worry about him, him, him exiting this world. Not only is he immortal, but I really want to talk for a moment about him being invisible. Because one question 
that a lot of people will be asking in our area of the world and have been asking for the last week is this. Where is God? We see the hurricane and we see the ravages that it brings. Where is God? We see how man, when man is struggling for survival, goes to its basis instincts in some ways. And yet we also see incredible Christian acts of compassion. Because while God himself is not visible, God is present. Okay? While God himself may be hard for us to see, that doesn't mean that God is not there in all of his power, in all of his love. And I weep for the people who have passed away in this. But I rejoice with those who have passed away into the hands of my father. And I really weep for the people who are suffering. And God is not invisible. In fact, I want to tell you something. If you want to go find some of Paul's other writings, you'll find out God has feet and he has hands and he has a voice and he has work to do. He has a body. The body of Christ is here. And that's why what we're doing is so important. Not because we're going to make permanent friends for life. Not because everybody we touch is going to be joined eternally as they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But because God made them and they have ever bit as much value as we have. They're just hurting and in need. And where we have an ability to help, that's God helping. What an honor. What an honor. To get to help is God. i got to confess to you, it's not something I like to do. I like to go to work. I like to watch TV some. It's not that big a deal, but it's a nice way to end the day. I like to uh, eat. I'm really big on that. I like, I really like to eat. That's right. I like to go to ball games. Yeah, the idea of getting, uh, Becky says to me this morning, she says, you know, you've done some things, I've done some things, the kids have done some things, you and I have done some things, but we need to do things as a family. We need to find family activities and go do them. I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to do that. Can I write a check? I like the idea of giving money. I'll write a check. I'm going to go watch some TV. No, shame on me. Shame on me. I have a chance to do something for God. And I'm, um, I need to seize that. We all do. See, we have a king, eternal, immortal, invisible. To him, the only God, we give our honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because what kind of God do we have? Do we have a God who sits up and up above and watches TV and writes us an occasional check? Or do we have a God who will come down to earth and do the work necessary to bring us home? I don't think it's something that is just an easy thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do. So Paul has our points for home, and I'm going to steal them because they're points he wrote to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy the following, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight. I wanted one of my daughters here for this this morning. She's not here. I was going to preach at her. 
y'all see her, preach at her. Tell her about this. But I'm going to preach it myself too, so maybe it applies to you. It's a fight sometimes to do what's right. Sometimes it's a fight that we wage within ourselves to do what we ought to do. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, hey, do your best. He says, fight the good fight. There are things out there that you need to be spending your time and your energy and your money on, and you may not want to do it, but you make yourself do it because you fight the good fight. You do what's right. It's not just fighting a good fight. That's holding on to the faith. Keep the faith, another translation says. Paul says, fight the good fight. Hold on to your faith. Our faith says that there is a God who made all of us. We live in a fallen world. That's why the hurricane happens. That's why the tsunami happens. That's why people do evil things. Because we live in a fallen world where wickedness reigns. If this world didn't have wickedness and evil and fallenness, God wouldn't need to replace it one day with another one. But this is a world that's under sin and under a curse that is at odds with God and is at odds with how God made us and what God wants us to be. And that is our faith. And our faith is also God has sent His Spirit in us. God has renewed our minds so we understand this with the charge that we are to show His love and compassion and at least try to bring what healing and nurture we can to this fallen world while we await our day of glory. Okay? Fight that good fight, Paul says. Hold on to that faith and keep your conscience clean. Have a hold on to your good conscience. Do what's right. It makes a difference. It makes a difference in how you feel about yourself, and it makes a difference in how God can use you tomorrow. I'm not talking about does God save you based upon whether or not you go out there and do something today. And understand me, some people are overdoing and probably need to scale back a little bit and maybe tend to their family and some things closer to them so the rest of us can step up to the plate. I'm not putting a guilt trip on anybody saying don't enjoy any of life. I'm saying look at it. Strive for balance. But as you strive for balance, recognize the needs that God's put in front of you and how you can address them. Does that make sense? Okay, maybe for some. Would you pray with me and we'll go home. Lord, you're very gracious and you're very good to us. And I'm amazed at the way I see your body and your people working right now. Lord, I see your church rising up in ways that our government's not. I see your church rising up in ways that that the charities don't. I see your church rising up to follow you, our Lord. And I rejoice over that. And I pray a confession that I'm not doing what I should necessarily, but I also pray a thankfulness for the opportunities that we've got. And it's my prayer, Lord, that your spirit will move each of us to help as we can to fight a good fight. We do give you all glory and honor forever and ever, our King, eternal, immortal, and invisible. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.